Thank you, musicians. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn in them to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have your Bibles, you might have it up on the screen for you. We're going to be looking at verses 38 through 48. Just look at verse 48 for a moment. Just look at verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you have children or have had children, one thing you know about children is just giving them one answer to a question is never enough. The other day I was in the room with Claire and I was going through our Bible study and she, she, uh, I, I said to her, well, at the end of the Bible study, Jesus, it was really good. You know, it was a really good Bible study we had. She's lucky to have such a good Bible teacher like myself. That's what I thought. And so I said to her, Jesus loves you. You know, real somber, really, for her to feel it. And she says, why? And I said, well, because you're made in his image. You're made in God's image. Don't you get this? And she said, why? Well, because God chose from before the foundation of the world that he would make a very special creature... Like you and like me and like Kellen, even Kellen is made in God's image. Why? And it was like, oh boy, this is going to go on ad infinitum. It's going to be forever. We're not going to get an answer to this question. On and on we go. And I realized it was going to be why, 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 why. Sometimes Christians are like children. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And all of us thought, why? We just sang songs about grace. We just sang songs about substitution. That Jesus paid on the cross the debt we owed to God. And yet Jesus would teach this same thing. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we ask the question, why? I mean, if our brains are engaged, we're asking this question. If Jesus was perfect, why do I have to be? The assumption here about this verse is that God is saying you must be perfect or else. But that's not there, is it? You see, Christians, God commands his people to do things, and he shouldn't need to give an explanation. But because he knew that man's heart was sinful, he gave them his word, and he gave them preachers and pastors for that word. So that we can explain what Jesus meant 
when he said, You therefore must be perfect as your Father is perfect. Today's message is entitled, Loving the Unlovely. How God's love for us compels us to love others. Look with me, if you would, at the text. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We're noticing that this is a familiar pattern in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus takes what people have heard said about religion and about God and says, you've heard that it was said. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. That's basically every article of clothing a person would have. I think the only thing left might be a loincloth at that point. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have also heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven... For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? That's the worst people in the minds of his audience that Jesus could mention. Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than Others do. Do not even the Gentiles do the same thing? Considered to be not God's people. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. God, this is a hard teaching. Unlovely people are hard to love. But you loved us while we were yet sinners by sending your Son to die in our place. Let us then be perfect as you are perfect. Amen. First thing I want to address this morning is what this passage is not about. One of the things the devil and demons love to do is take a passage of Scripture and manipulate it to their own or to fit their own worldview. Demons use the Bible. And they love to use it with Christians who don't know the Bible as well as they know the Bible. You'll be shocked when you meet your atheist professor and he knows more about the Bible than you do, who claims to live by it. But this passage is not about what we think it's about. And a lot of times we we see a passage in Scripture and we make it about something other than what it's about. So before we get into what this passage is about, I want to just diffuse a couple mental time bombs. The first thing I want to point out is that this passage is not about pacifism. It's not a passage about pacifism or activism. Pacifism, in the strictest sense, denies the use of violence in every situation, self-defense and even national defense. 
This is not a passage about pacifism. Jesus is not speaking about defending ourselves from death or from lethal force. That's what self-defense is. That's what national defense is. It's, It's protecting yourself from someone trying to kill you. But retaliation is different. We're out from under harm. It's an attitude of getting even and justifying our ego. Retaliation is about protecting our ego, not about protecting our bodies. Because we retaliate once our bodies are free from the suffering and no more danger. Now it's called retaliation. We're going to get back. Say, for instance, what happened in Chicago. Within the first six months in Chicago of the year 2016, 1,900 murders, the most since the 1980s. More murders in Chicago than in New York and L.A. combined. And the main reason was gang violence. And you ask what the main reason for that gang violence was, it was simple. It was retaliation. He shot my boy. Now several days later, I'm going to go shoot him. Four shootings in Dania Beach starting on Christmas night. Finally, one ended with the death of an eight-year-old child. All retaliation. This wasn't about self-defense. It was about getting back. But this passage isn't about self-defense. It's not about national defense. People try and take the turn the other cheek ethic and they try to apply it to a grand scale to the government and say government should turn the other cheek. This is not about capital punishment or not about the government's right to punish lawbreakers. 1 Peter 2.13 tells us be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to do what? Punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Peter, a disciple of Jesus, tells us that the government has the right to punish those who do evil. Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities... That is, whoever resists the government, that is, whoever resists the police as an arm of the government. Whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed. When the police officer says, put your hands up, it's not about obeying him, it's about obeying God. Now, I cannot preach this and act like this passage isn't there. But the scripture teaches that those authorities, bad ones too. It's ironic that Paul, when he wrote that, knew how bad the government could be since he did nothing and was in prison. Could say, subject yourselves to those authorities. For rulers are not a terror to do good or to good conduct, but to bad. 
Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Paul and Peter aren't contradicting what their Lord taught about turning the other cheek. Yet all of the time, we are told that turn the other cheek means we have to be pacifist. Or that we don't have a right to protect ourselves. Or that a nation should not engage in war. Or that a nation should not punish those who break the law. But from this passage... You can't get that, and you can't find it in Scripture. Well, then what is this passage about? I want to make three points this morning about what this passage is about. Number one, God's people are characterized by grace, not wrath and retaliation. God's people are characterized by grace, not wrath and retaliation. Jesus begins with a command. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And in the last passages that we had read from the Sermon on the Mount, usually what has happened is that the Pharisees have become laxed with the teaching of God. In fact, in the next passage, we'll see that's what they do again. But in this instance... It doesn't appear that the Pharisees are laxed on the teaching of God. It doesn't seem to be opposing God's word. In fact, Jesus is taking God's word. The Pharisees taught as we are taught, in other words, by our parents and by society. They taught this. If someone hits you, what? Hit them back. Is that not what you were taught? Someone hits you, you hit them back. So it's not just the Pharisees that heard this. We hear it every day. Some of us are teaching our kids this right now. Someone hits you, you hit them back. That is not self-defense. That is ego defense. Or if someone sues you, you sue them. Or we teach if someone requires you to do something that you don't want to do, then don't do it. This is, on the surface, a very human way of looking at things. So we can't jump on the Pharisees for teaching eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Someone hits you on the cheek, hit them back. We are all doing it today. C.S. Lewis began his book, Mere Christianity, by this. He says, everyone has heard people quarreling. Quarreling is trying to show that the other person is in the wrong. They say things like, how do you like it if anyone did the same to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Why should you shove in first? I was here first. Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. People say things like that every day, 
educated people as well as uneducated, and children as well as grown-ups. It's because we're appealing to a standard of right and wrong. It's because we know a right and wrong, and oftentimes we want to be our own judge. Someone hits us, we hit them back. But Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not resist the one who is evil. Why? It goes against common sense. It goes against common sense that we would resist or that we would not retaliate. I want us to think about the word retaliate when we hear the word resist. Against someone who would harm us. Why? Here's the answer. Because the new covenant is based on grace. That is a gift. An unearned gift. Through the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. And not on God's justified retaliation against sinners. We are new covenant people. And our new covenant is not based on what God would have been justified in doing. Would God not have been justified as the Roman soldiers looked up at Jesus and the very spittle which he placed under their tongue was shot out at God who made them? Had God put them to death? Would he not have been justified in doing it? Would Jesus not have been justified when those Roman soldiers crammed down briar thorns upon his skull and he bled profusely by snapping his fingers or even thinking the thought, kill him for what he's doing to me? Yet like a lamb to its slaughter, he was silent. The new covenant is based not on God's justified retaliation against sinners. He would have been justified in condemning us, but upon grace. Undeserved grace. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who don't walk according to the flesh, but who walk according to the Spirit. New covenant people are characterized by grace, And not retaliation. Believers walk according to this covenant. Not according to the flesh. Not according to the wisdom that teaches. When someone hits you, you hit them back. When someone sues you, you sue them back. When someone tells you to give them something or walk a mile, you walk. You don't want to do it, you don't do it. No. We are characterized by grace. Point two. God's people entrust themselves to God who judges justly. God's people entrust themselves to God 
who judges justly. The phrase, do not resist, does not mean allow people to physically, psychologically, or spiritually abuse you. The phrase, do not resist an evil person, does not mean that a woman should allow a man to rape her if she can defend herself. It does not mean that you should allow a man to beat you to death if you can defend yourself. When David was with Saul, and Saul threw a spear at David, David didn't sin by moving out of the way. And no, he should not have picked up the spear, taken it back to Saul and say, you missed, have another go at it. (laughs) Wayne Grudem makes that point. This does not mean, do not resist, does not mean flee harm if someone's beating you or someone's hurting you. This is not about defense. It is about careful consideration of God's grace and non-retaliation. Gruden points out other examples in the New Testament where both Paul and Jesus don't turn the other cheek like we think, but fled or resisted evil. When King... Eratos attempted to capture Paul in Damascus. He escaped by being let down in a basket through an opening in the wall. He didn't stay. Jesus escaped from an angry crowd at Nazareth that was trying to throw him off of a cliff because he could. On another occasion, Jesus hid himself in the temple and then escaped from hostile Jews who were seeking to harm him because he could. Common sense mixed with a careful reading of Scripture proves to us that Jesus does not intend for us to allow ourselves to be physically, psychologically, or spiritually abused when such abuse can be prevented by either getting away or by defending oneself. So then what's going on? We have to notice that in the passage, the deeds have already been done and are over with. The person has been slapped. The person has been sued. The person is being asked or has been asked. In other words, the threat or the abuse has already happened. It's over with. It's done The context as well as many examples, the other examples I just gave you in Scripture, show us that Jesus means do not resist the evil one or turn the other cheek. That what he means by this phrase is that it would be wrong for a person once they have suffered abuse and the immediate threat of danger is over with to then retaliate in order to get back at them as a way of justifying our egos. That's a mouthful. Sometimes these passages are complex. What he is saying is it is wrong for a person once they have suffered abuse and the immediate threat of danger is over with to then retaliate in order to get back at them as a way of self-justification. So what do you do 
in the instances of Chicago. If they would have taken this word literally, we would have a lot less dead boys today. Had the shooting stopped on December 25th in Dania, there'd still be a boy alive today. But no. They had to justify themselves and they had to get back. It was done with. But their ego was more important than even the safety of their friends and family. And Jesus says, this this is not the behavior of my people. Once it's done, it's done. Better that you suffer wrongdoing than that we embarrass God. So he gives three examples, all having to do with persons who've suffered personal victimization. This isn't family victimization. It's not watching your child getting beaten by a man and just saying, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. People say to, to people, other Christians, one of, the, one of the debates that's going on in Christian circles is whether or not a Christian should own a firearm to protect their family. I don't think a Christian should be pro-gun. Pro-gun. Yeah. I like to load my clip and watch animals die like Rambo or something. But if a Christian says, I want to protect my family because the guy who comes in my house at night is probably going to have a gun. And when they buy that gun, they lay their hands on it and pray, God, don't ever let me use this. I think they're well within their rights of Scripture. It's not what's going on here. It's personal victimization. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You got two cheeks on your face. If I said that because I didn't know where everybody was right there. I knew where I was. Shame on you. If anyone, my dad would say that when I'd get a spanking. You have two cheeks, so you're getting two licks. He believed in the law of equal distribution. If anyone, if anyone would sue you or take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. He doesn't say to him, give him your house as well, but give him your cloak. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. The first is an insult as well as an injury. The person slapped on the right cheek has been hit with the back of a right-handed person. Most of the people in that day were right-handed. So if you've been slapped on your right cheek, you've been a backhand. So a backhand's going to hurt worse than an open slap. When you mouth off to your mom, she doesn't usually backhand you because she doesn't want the authorities to see the scars. So she gives you the softer side of the palm, and she gives you just a smack to kind of get you awake. But a backhanded slap is pretty bad because the knuckles cut across the cheekbone, and usually it'll immediately swell up And you'll probably have a cut across your face. You'll probably look pretty bad. So this is a pretty bad thing. It doesn't take much imagination to assume what we would want to do if a person backhanded us across the face. This is no mystery. If it's someone you know or someone you don't know walks up and backhands you across the face, what are you going to want to do? Hit them back. And Jesus says, 
No. No. Don't hit him back. Turn to him the other cheek. Now, he's not saying provoke him either. Hit me again. He's not saying that. His point is, don't. It's just like every other hyperbole or exaggeration in these passages. In other words, don't resist the evil one. The second is an example of personal victimization in a lawsuit. People didn't necessarily sue others for their cloak and tunic, but Jesus is using a metaphor for hyperbolic reasons. That means an exaggeration to show that if a person takes the outer layer of clothing, which is your, or under layer would be your tunic, and cloak would be your outer layer, just give them both. The third example deals with the Roman law of conscription. Roman soldiers were, by law, allowed to ask citizens to carry their load with them for a mile and no further. That was a law. And so a Roman soldier could walk up and do that. And you may not want to be doing it. You might be doing something else. Of course, if a Roman soldier asks you to do it, do it. But Jesus says, don't just do your mile. Do two. Give them two. Give to the one who asks of you, the one who begs of you. Give to the one who asks of you. But why not fight back? Because Jesus didn't fight back. 1 Peter 2, 23-24 When Jesus was reviled, He did not revile in return. And when He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Why not sue? Why walk an extra mile? Because we're children of a new covenant. A covenant of grace. And we follow the example of Jesus. The person who retaliates entrusts themselves to be their own judge of men's actions rather than the God who judges justly. But Christians are to withhold retaliation because Jesus did not return reviling for reviling, and when he suffered, he did not threaten back, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. If I told you, turn the other cheek, don't sue those who sue you. Give to them more than what they ask. Walk another mile. Go the extra mile. It's where that expression comes from. And I didn't tell you why I would sound like a crazy person. And this is why all pacifism dies. Because it can't support itself apart from this one reason. Because God did it for you. Every human institution... Every human relationship is not between you and another. It's always between you and God. Why don't you fight back? Because Jesus didn't fight back. Why should you love your wife? Because Christ loved the church. Why should you submit to your husband? Because Christ submitted to God. Why should you not murder? Because he's created in God's image. Every single relationship is based upon God. 
And the reason why we don't retaliate is not because of any other reason than simply this. Because Jesus didn't. And that should be good enough. Why? Because Jesus didn't. Craig Blomberg says it like this. He's a New Testament scholar. Not only must Christ's disciples reject all behavior motivated only by a desire for retaliation, but they also must positively work for the good of those with whom they would otherwise be at odds. The point of our passage is to be perfect like God. Finally, in our last passage, point three, God's people love unlovely people. God's people love unlovely people. Some of you are thinking of unlovely people right now. They're wearing a name tag that says boss or pastor, or husband, or wife, or your actual neighbor. But God's people love the unloveliest of people because God loved the unloveliest of sinners. Jesus knew that when someone was victimized, that the person would be responsible for the suffering naturally would become their enemy. You can imagine that should the crowd have taken Jesus' words literally here and suffered a double slap or been taken advantage of in court or by conscription, that not retaliating against the evil person would naturally breed hatred for the newly acquired enemy. So if, all you, if you get that slap on the cheek and you don't hit back, and you go on hating that person, that's not it. Because the command isn't just to not retaliate, it's now to love your enemy and pray for your persecutor. And by the way, it means love your enemy and your persecutor, and pray for your enemy and pray for your persecutor. That's what it means. So it's not enough. To simply give them your cloak and tunic. It's not enough to simply give to the person who asks of you and give them more than they ask, going that extra mile. But love them. Pray for them. That's a different thing altogether. A ready expression that was, once again, an abuse of Scripture by the Pharisees to love one's neighbor and hate one's enemy would have nicely anesthetized the pain. Well, at least if I've absorbed the blow, at least I can hate them. At least I can hold this grudge against them. For what they did to me, I'm going to hold a grudge. I'm never going to forgive them. And Jesus knows this, and he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The Bible says love your neighbor. It nowhere says hate your enemy. But the Pharisees wrongly understood that the corollary that followed after loving only your neighbor was, you can hate your enemy. When Jesus was asked the question, 
who is my neighbor, he gave a very famous parable. And what's that parable about? The good Samaritan. You could rename this parable the neighborly enemy. Because Jews hated Samaritans. They hated them. They were half-breeds. Not worthy of being called a Jew. They worshipped wrongly. And Jesus says, the neighbor in this story is someone who you don't think would be a neighbor. The one who behaves neighborly to the person in need. Everyone is your neighbor, even unlovely people. The Pharisees permitted the hatred of their enemy, but not Jesus. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is not in heaven. Now we can't assume here that by love Jesus means amore, or tender feeling of love. Can you love someone you don't like? Yes, you can. Because love's not about emotions. That thing for your wife or for your girlfriend, that's called the tingles. And the tingles are good. You should work to keep the cider bubbling. You should have the tingles, but that's not love. That's not what love looks like. Love is always an action. You can love your enemy. You can love those you don't even like. Love or the emotion or feelings are not necessarily unimportant here, but they are secondary. Love means self-sacrifice for others. I said love means self-sacrifice for others. We can love people we don't like simply by giving up a cloak and a tunic or by going an extra mile with or for them. So God is not requiring us to transform our feelings first in order for us to then love our enemies and persecutors. Only that we begin to love them through self-sacrificial service right away. Because this is the way God loves us. God shows his love for us. That while we were still sinners, what does sinner mean? It doesn't mean immoral. Sin doesn't mean immoral. Sin means someone opposing a person named God. That's sin. Sin means transgressing a personal command from God, not being immoral. Society says it's immoral to be intolerant. That's not God. Sin is to offend God. So while, in other words, we were God's enemies, God showed his love for us that while we were still his enemies, 
Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. We love our enemies because God loved us as His enemies. But what about praying for our enemy? F.F. Bruce, the famous New Testament scholar, recalls a story by a 19th century Scottish preacher named Alexander White. Quoting from an old diary, White, quoting from an old diary, the confessions of a man who had to share the same house and the same table with someone who he found unendurable, probably his wife, he betook himself to prayer until he was able to write, quote, Next morning I found it easy to be civil and even benevolent to my neighbor, and I felt at the Lord's table today as if I would yet live to love that man. I feel sure I will. The point is that prayer is an act of compassion for one's enemy. The prayer is not, God, kill my enemy. This isn't the imprecatory prayers of David in the Psalms. The prayer is, God, don't bring him harm. It's the sort of prayer that Jesus has in mind where we ask God to show the same mercy to our enemies and persecutors that God has shown to us. That's what he means when he says, pray for your enemies. You've been hurt. You've got people right now who are hurting you. How often do you pray for them that God would show them grace? No, you're waiting for God to get them back because they've hurt you. How do I know? Because the same sinful heart that lives in your chest beats in mine too. I know what it's like to be hurt. I know what it's like to have enemies and people who hate you and want nothing but your failure who will glory on the ashes of your burnt body and failed ministry. I know. What does that have to do with obedience? What does that have to do with me obeying Jesus? What does it have to do with me reflecting on what he did for me that while I was his enemy, while I was running after other gods, while I was lusting after other women, while I was running after alcohol to be my God, that he loved me, that he would die for me, that he would call me undeservedly? What does it have to do with anything? God loved us so undeservedly. How can we not then love others who don't deserve it? I am not appealing to you to love someone just because, but because God has loved you. Oh, man. This is what it means to be perfect. Does it mean be morally perfect? Jesus hasn't lost his mind and assumed that the flesh can do the very thing that it couldn't do. The very reason why he came to the earth 
was to fulfill in the flesh what you and I could not fulfill in the flesh. And now he's demanding perfection. No. What he means is, Christian, the whole point, the end, this is the end of the teaching of the anger of the don't commit adultery, of the do not divorce, of the oaths, of the non-retaliation, of the loving your enemies. We're at the end. And the whole purpose to do these things is because your God is like this. Now be like your God. Is that enough? Or do you need more? Do you need more of a reason why you should obey? Or is being like God enough? I think the message translation says it best for verse 48. And I want to end with it. The message translation says it like this. In a word, to put a pin on the end of this to put, a, to put an explanation and to put a, an exclamation point at the end of this teaching on why we as Christians stay faithful to our spouses, why we don't hate our brothers in our heart, why we don't lust after other flesh, why we keep our word, why we don't retaliate, to put an exclamation on it, it's this. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. This is the message translation. For verse 48. In a word, what I am saying is grow up. Your kingdom subjects now. Now live like it. Live out your God created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way God lives. Towards you. Let's pray. God, help us to love unlovely people. Help us not to entrust ourselves to our own self-justice, but to entrust ourselves to you who judges justly. Because you, Jesus, have been the example of what it means to be perfect. Lord, you know we're not going to be clean of sin but should we not all strive to be perfect? Many of us before this life is over won't turn that other cheek. But Lord, create in the hearts of these people here today a desire to be perfect because you're perfect. Created in my heart, Lord, to want you. Not because I'm earning your salvation, because I'm not. But because you've made me something new. And you have equipped me with everything I need and everything we need to be godly and to love others. We love you, Jesus. Thank you. Amen.